coming up on this episode of the Work Not Work Show. I remember hearing Charles Barkley talk about, I'm not a role model. Um, but inevitably, in some way, shape, or form, you are. And even if you don't want to be, which I fully respect his opinion of not wanting to be, but uh, you want to share your story to the right people at the right point in time. I, I, I work uh, with Big Brothers Big Sisters from a mentorship perspective, and I think that's really important. That's Michael C. Smith, three-time Olympic decathlete. Some kids dream about competing in just one sport at the Olympics. Michael Smith dreamed about competing in no less than 10. Much more with Michael coming up. I'm Terrence Seganin, and welcome to Episode 2 of the Work Not Work Show. Work Not Work is the show about people who have turned their passion into their profession. In each episode, we talk to people who have turned what they love to do into what they do for a living. We hope to provide an entertaining blend of inspiration, ideas, and information for people who want to be inspired by their work. Our guest on this episode is Michael C. Smith. Michael was just 18 years old when Canadian Olympic coach Andy Higgins knocked on the front door of his parents' home in Kenora, Ontario. After seeing Michael at various junior meets, Andy just knew that Michael had what it took to be a world-class Olympic decathlete. Just one week later, Michael was launched on a 13-year odyssey that would take him to the Seoul, Barcelona, and Atlanta Olympic Games. We talked with Michael about his Olympic experiences and how he transitioned to life after world-class competition. We sat down with Michael near the University of Calgary just before he headed off to provide color commentary for the track and field competition at the 2016 Summer Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro. Michael, welcome to the Work Not Work Show. It's an honor to have you as our guest on this episode. Thank you, Terrence. Michael, perhaps the best place to start is to provide our listeners with a quick introduction to the decathlon competition for those who may not be familiar with it. Sure. Well, the decathlon has been around since uh, the modern Olympic Games uh, has evolved, and uh, it started as a pentathlon and morphed into 10 events, DECA, for decathlon, but it consists of five events per day over two days. Um, the first event is the 100 meters, then the long jump, shot put, high jump, and 400 meters finishes off day one. And then second day is 110 meter hurdles, discus, pole vault, javelin, and 1500 meters. So it's, uh, it's a quite an extensive test of uh, athletic prowess. The winner of the Olympic decathlon is traditionally referred to as the world's greatest athlete. How do you feel about that title, and do you think it's fair? I, I think there is definitely a, a historical reference in that regard. I, I believe it was um, the king of Sweden at one point named Jim Thorpe the, the best athlete in the world, if I recall correctly. So I think that moniker has, has stuck. Um, I think there's some healthy debate that could go on that uh, I've seen some pretty talented guys on the NBA um, uh, hardwood floor to see uh, that they would probably be destined to be some of the best athletes in the world as well, and a combination of other sports, soccer as well, so uh, football. Um, but uh, we'll happily take that, uh, that label as decathletes, that's for sure. It strikes me that the commitment to the event has to start very young. Can you take us back to the first time the notion of competing in decathlon first occurred to you, and what influences were involved? Sure. Well, I was uh, born and raised in a small town in northern Ontario named Kenora, Ontario, so not a hotbed for uh, decathlon by any stretch of the imagination, but I just really enjoyed each and every sport. Um, I played hockey, baseball, football, basketball, volleyball, badminton, and track and field was just one of those multiple sports that I did as a child. And I was really gearing more towards playing playing football at a high level. I had a couple of uh, conversations and, and letters and invitations from some U.S. schools. Um, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers had my territorial rights because I was within a 200-mile radius of Winnipeg. Um, so I had, I had a bit of a bias as I, as I went through my teens to gear more and more towards football. But a few days before my last year of high school began, the Canadian Olympic decathlon coach from the University of Toronto came to my home 
and visited myself and my parents. And he did that because there was a number of other coaches at University of Toronto that noticed me at the Ontario High School Championships. And um, he had, uh, you know, a, a lot of experience in the sport. He knew that I was tall and fast. I had won the 200 meters in the long jump at Ontario High School Championships. And most sprinters were, um, you know, five, six, seven inches shorter than I was. I was probably 6'3 or 6'4 at the time. So all that uh, put together, he thought that I would be a good decathlete. So it was really on the advice of Andy Higgins, the national coach at the time, that I, I even gave decathlon any thought. It was uh, so when, when, uh, an Olympic coach shows up at your doorstep, you, you tend to listen. <laughs> and, uh, so myself and my parents had uh, a really good visit with, uh, with him and his wife. And um, lo and behold, um, uh, a week later, I was moving to Toronto to focus on decathlon. It was that fast? It was that fast. The decision, uh, my parents um, uh, definitely trusted my opinion. And uh, um, Andy left our home um, after our conversation, but returned about 15 minutes later with um, a bunch of notes scribbled on uh, a number of napkins, what he thought was possible for me in the sport of decathlon. And uh, um, my mother still has those somewhere, but all the things that he said came true. Can you describe the role of your parents at that time? Were they active participants in your early track career? Was that an important aspect of your early development as an athlete? For sure. They, they were always incredibly supportive. I have uh, a brother and two sisters, so the four of us were um, always really uh, encouraged to excel at anything that we loved to do, including sport, but uh, more so academics. So um, certainly my parents had um, a lot of belief in what, uh, what they thought was possible for me as well. So it was really a collaborative decision for me to move to Toronto, but a quick one. Um, so uh, very supportive. My mother's a nurse, my father's a teacher, so a little bit of nurturing and a lot of education and uh, a lot of thought goes on in our household. So all those things combined uh, sent me off to Toronto. What about brothers and sisters? Yeah, my, my brother was a very high-level swimmer. Older or younger? Uh, younger. He's yeah. two years younger. Yeah. And then I have two sisters, uh, my, my older sister and then my youngest sister. They're the bookends uh, of, the fa- of the siblings. And uh, both of them were very athletic as well, but uh, I seem to just have uh, a little bit extra drive, and, and, my, and my height and speed certainly helped in, in regards to the sports that I chose. Did they participate at the same level of competition as you did? Um, in high school, yes, but then as I moved on to the national team, no, my, my youngest brother probably had the, had the best sporting career after me, not my two sisters, but he was on the national youth team for swimming, um, but he was a, a very high-level swimmer from early on in his, uh, in his uh, early teens, if not uh, 10, 11, 12, and um, by the time he got into his 20s, I think he had his fill of, uh, of spending time in the pool and just decided to do different things. But I was really fresh and new to the sport of decathlon. I had tried track and field before, but um, only two of the, of the 10 events that are involved. So I was a real newbie to the sport and I had a lot of room to grow. In a lot of careers, work ethic can overcome lack of natural talent. I'm not sure that's the case in this line of work. For an Olympic athlete, to what degree do you think talent is the deciding factor as opposed to work ethic or commitment to the sport? That's a, that's a very good question. I, I, I think that talent and how we describe it, is it uh, genetic makeup, it is, is it psychological, um, but that talent base is, is significant, if not 80, 90, 95% in my opinion. And the work ethic, even though it's only the last you know, 5 to 20% is just as important as that first 80 or 95%. Um, I was really fortunate that I, you know, out of the gates, I, I, you know, someone would say I won the genetic lottery. Mm. Um, my, my mother is, her background is Irish, Norwegian, Swish, Swiss, uh, British, um, and a very strong woman in all, uh, in all sense of the words. And my father was, is, is not terribly tall, five foot 11, but thin and fast. So, um, I think I got a combination of both of them. And so, so that was for sure the, um, the initiating factor in, in all of my athletic ability, but I did, I have to say, have a very strong work ethic and, uh, you can't, 
can't not have a strong work ethic in the sport of decathlon. It just entails too much to try and rest on your, on your skill alone. In 1986, you competed and placed second at the World Junior Championships in Athens, Greece. That sounds like a spectacular debut. Can you describe that experience and how doing well at such an early age impacted your career after that? Well, that was the real tipping point in my ultimate decision to focus exclusively on decathlon. Up until that last year of high school, like I mentioned, I did play a lot of sports, and I had the option of, of going back to football. There were some scholarships uh, kind of on the shelf for me, but that last year of high school, when I decided to move to Toronto, I exclusively focused on track and field and decathlon. Um, but when you get to compete on the world stage, um, my second ever decathlon, I, I was able to compete against the world record holder, Daley Thompson, at the time at a tri-country meet between Canada, France, and Great Britain um, in Marseille, France. So uh, it, it's a really unique experience when you get to launch onto the world stage of, of track and field because it is truly an international sport, um, 210 countries participate at it at the Olympic Games and World Championship level, so it is a global, global sport. So in addition to that early um, um, exposure to the top people in the, in the event, uh, the World Junior Championships um, was a very, very significant event for um, athletes 19 years of age and younger. And to finish second, uh, only nine months into training for the, for the decathlon was um, a, a big feather in my cap and a big check mark to me saying this is the sport that, uh, it, uh, that I chose and it chose me. So it was uh, off to the races after that. This is going to sound like an odd question, but did that early success help you or hurt you in the long term over the balance of your athletic career? Good question. I, th- I think... I think that initially it definitely helped. Um, it, it gives you some exposure and it gives you uh, some confidence. Um, uh, but with that, as you start to progress through the world stage comes a lot of expectations, uh, certainly um, you know, self-directed expectations, but outside expectations as well. I was really fortunate to be a, uh, an athlete who... Um, could attract some corporate sponsors and uh, was able to win some prize money at competitions in Europe. So once you get on, um, you're, you're noted and get on the screen of, of potential Olympic medalists, a lot of other things circulate around that from a pressure perspective. But that is really a big, big part of the sport is how, how do you react to that and how do you use that as a, a real positive tool rather than a, a negative influence. So you weren't left with the impression that it was pretty easy, the fact that you had done so well in this sport after a relatively short period of training and preparation. I wouldn't say I felt that it was easy. I felt that I, 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 was, I was talented at it and I did the work. And that's, that's, a, that's a real big part of, of sports in general. I've seen some incredibly talented talented athletes with massive athletic skills, but just decided not to work that hard. And uh, that's what really makes the difference when you're talking about the top 0.1% of athletes that get to attend the Olympic Games or the, make the NHL or make the NBA or make, the, um, you know, make it to the Super Bowl. There's going to be a very um, small number. So within that group, you better make sure that you're doing all the work that you possibly can to be the best. Just two years later, you were competing in Seoul, South Korea. How did that compare to your junior championship experience? And can you describe your first Olympic Games? Did you feel the pressure of high expectations given your early success? Um, I I think that um, originally when Andy Higgins came to my door in Kenora uh, a couple years previous, he expected that I would make the Olympic Games unbeknownst to me and unbeknownst to... Um, him only competing in two of the ten events of the decathlon, but he had enough confidence in me and my athletic skill and uh, and whatnot. So um, I, I really uh, owe him a lot of gratitude just for, to have that confidence in me, and, and that's what really pulled me along to that first Olympic Games. To He encouraged me along with my other coaches at University of Toronto 
you have the ability to do this. They just were very quiet and calm about it, but uh, um, instilled a great sense of confidence in me. So as a 20-year-old competing at uh, on the world stage, um, I kind of timed it right just because I was uh, young enough to get a first impression of the Olympic Games, but most track and field athletes don't hit their peak until their late 20s, early 30s now even. So um, as a 20-year-old to experience um, you know, one of the biggest spectacles of sport on the planet was a real advantage for me in, in the long-term development uh, of me in decathlon. You have talked quite a bit about the influence of your first coach, Andy Higgins. Have you continued to stay in touch with him over the years? Yes, and um, uh, he lives in Toronto, and I moved to Calgary to, to work with another coach in, the, in kind of in the center of my uh, career, but, but certainly once, uh, once a coach, always a coach. It's, it's kind of uh, um, like a parent relationship, and then obviously that starts uh, with a young athlete, and it, uh, and it mutually matures, and it becomes more of a collaborative process with, uh, with all the best coaches that I've been very fortunate to work with. We're going to talk more about coaching both on and off the field a little bit later in the interview. Before we leave Seoul, however, how did you do and were you pleased with the outcome? Um, I was 14th, 13th or 14th. I have to look at the statistics. Right, right. Um, but uh, I, I kind of achieved my goal of being top 16. And back in the late 80s, there was a, a government carding system, whereas when you were top eight, top 16, or top 50 in the world, there was a level of funding. And the top 16 is basically based on a semifinal at an Olympic level. There's eight lanes in a pool. There's eight lanes on a track. Um, in a wrestling tournament, if you make the top eight, there's, that's a significant achievement. So top eight, top 16 is kind of a threshold for a lot of athletes. And for me to be in the top 16 at my first Olympics was, uh, was uh, um, a goal achieved. After the Seoul Olympics, you had an incredible run, placing first in three world-level competitions in a row and placing either second or third in other major competitions leading up to the Barcelona Olympics. You were also the flag bearer for Canada at that event. But then you were forced to withdraw with an injury. Can you tell us about that and in particular how you coped with that disappointment? Yeah, it was... uh, in, In hindsight it kind of gets diluted in your mind, but in the moment, it's a significant, significant disappointment, as you can imagine, with four years of training, and your your entire life really becomes focused around the Olympic Games. Um, It's, uh, even though there are other major competitions, like you mentioned, in between Olympic years with the World Championships, Commonwealth Games, some invitational European competitions, the Olympics is really the pinnacle of, uh, of, of track and field to, to get on the podium and, and potentially vie for a gold medal is really the ultimate challenge. So unfortunately for me, I had an injury going into the games that had not fully healed. Um, you always hope and wish and pray and do all the right things to, to help support any type of injury that you get as an athlete. Um, but it's, it's a tough thing in track and field specifically uh, you're competing basically against yourself and time and gravity. And time and gravity do not take a day off. <laughs> and, uh, and when you're competing against yourself as well to try and achieve your, um, uh, your previous personal bests, any type of uh, minor or major injury certainly, uh, certainly puts a, um, a damper on any type of major achievements when you have that going into it. So very disappointing, but... Again, it, it, in hindsight, it gets really diluted, but, but it was a big part of my development as, a, as, a, as an adult. I was 24 years old, and um, uh, the ability to represent your country and carry the flag into the um, Olympic Stadium and then to uh, not be able to uh, complete your competition was a whole whirlwind of emotion, as you can imagine. But, um, uh, but you take from it... Only the positive, I think, uh, in as as the years go by, and uh, uh, I can still look back with uh, you know I, I wish things had gone different, but uh, I don't look back on it with with major regret or disappointment. I would think the Olympics are the real marquee event in an elite athlete's calendar. How did you sustain your interest in the relatively long periods between Olympic Games? Well, you know, every a lot of people and uh, talk about. 
um, what you have to give up as an athlete and how you have to um, change your life and miss out on certain things. But I tell you what, it is one of the best lifestyles anyone could ask for. It is hard, hard, hard work physically, mentally, emotionally. But if you're in the right environment with supportive people, coaches, uh, you call them colleagues, but they're your fellow athletes, uh, to train in an environment that everyone is trying to get better each and every day, it's a real special place to be. And, uh, you know, people always think about the, um, the, the physical chore of training, but I tell you what, it is, uh, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a love. You, you really have to enjoy working hard and um, you can see the results, you know, from a day-to-day basis. It's, it doesn't, it's never a straight line up. It's never a straight line down. There's a lot of cycles involved in, in improving um, your events in decathlon and, and track and field is in general. And some of them are really, really micro uh, changes, millimeters and centimeters at a time. Yeah. Um, but, but you really have to love it, and I certainly did. I was in a great environment with great people, and uh, uh, what a lifestyle. You get to travel the world as well. So what I think you've said in so many words is that winning is a relatively small part of the experience. It, it better be because yeah. there's a lot of days in between those those wins, and it's and, and track and field and decathlon particularly. I, I would kind of equate it to a marathon runner in in the sport of track and field as well. When I look at guys in the NHL and the NBA and they're play and and Major League Baseball, how many games a week are they you know exposed to, and how many chances do they get to win during that week, during that month, during that season? Literally for decathlon, at, when you hit uh, the peak of peak level of your career, you're doing two, maybe three decathlons a year. So can you imagine if Sidney Crosby only got to play two hockey games a year? <laughs> it would be it would be tough in between. I'm sure he would practice hard, but uh, but it's just a different different game, a different animal altogether. So you better like training and working hard rather than just focusing on winning alone. What you have just described sounds like perfect training for life. The golden moments in one's life are relatively few and far between, and there is a lot of slogging from one to the next. Olympic-level training sounds like good training for what happens in the real world. In any event, you then had another good run up to the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta, Georgia. Can you tell us about that period and your final Olympic appearance? Again, that was kind of the peak of my career. I was, uh, you know, that quadrennial cycle, I was uh, 24 to 28 or 25 to 29. So for all intents and purposes, just because I had started as an 18-year-old, that was really um, the, the final chapter, really, the, the, the shelf life of, a, of an Olympic athlete. If you can beat it one Olympic Games, it's, it's fantastic. If you can beat it two, it's amazing. And I was able to compete at three. Um, and, and so that was definitely heading into the twilight of my career. But I, was, I, I had moved to Calgary in 1994, again, um, looking for continued stimulation and motivation around the sport. And I knew the value and the impact of coaches. And I had uh, known a gentleman by the name of Les Gramantic at University of Calgary my entire career. And uh, rather than look to go to the U.S. to train or, or Europe to train, which I had the option to do, I decided I wanted to stay in Canada. And if I wasn't going to be in Toronto, Calgary was definitely the place. They had a great infrastructure um, on the heels of the 88 Olympics in regards to training facilities. And, and you might not think that uh, in regards to track and field would have a lot of carryover from the bobsledders and speed skaters, but it certainly does. Um, so great facilities uh, and, and great medical and uh, and health support infrastructure as well, massage therapists, physiotherapists, a great sports sciences lab here in, in University of Calgary. So all those assets um, were, uh, were a deciding factor, but first and foremost, it was the coach that I, I really decided to make a move uh, to come to Calgary. And then from 94, 95, 96, um, uh, I continually improved. I broke my Canadian record again for the third or fourth time in 1996 leading into the Olympic Games. And then um, uh, it literally was the peak of my career. That was as, as good as it got uh, for my career. And I continued for two years after that Olympic Games, but uh, um, 
again, those big, long quadrennial cycles take a lot of focus and a lot of, uh, a lot of desire to, to keep your motivation in between them. Were you tempted to try for a fourth Olympics? Did that cross your mind? Uh, at one point in time, and you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I probably, and my coach and I have uh, um, talked about this over uh, a couple of nice bottles of wine on a couple of occasions. So, um, but it, for an athlete for, to have a career as long as I had, um, you know, thirteen years of that type of intensive environment and training is probably worth at least double, if not triple, of of a. Of a, of a quote-unquote regular career so those 13 years might have equated to 25 or 40 years of a of a real of a normal career so um i probably if i decided to go for a fourth olympic games at some point in my career i should have taken a year off it's mm. just stepped away from the sport and not a hundred percent but at least 60 70 80 percent where you would still train a little bit but you would stay active but you would just take a real mental break to get reinvigorated and refocused um, uh, to do another Olympic game. So, so the, again, hindsight's twenty twenty, and you can hypothesize. But I've seen some athletes do that subsequently, and uh, I think it works out well when you take that little bit of step back to, to kind of uh, reignite your career. In Atlanta, your results were fairly similar to what they were in Seoul. Were you happy with that? Absolutely not. It was, it was really devastating for me in Atlanta. Um, I was at the peak of my career, and uh, I had a, a terrible Olympic Games. I really did. I should have been on the podium um, in, in Atlanta. And uh, I had a number of things that went on there um, uh, that just uh, uh, ultimately didn't support me getting on the podium. I, I had a bad Games. And uh, there was um, an intravenous saline solution involved and dehydration and uh, overhydration. So a lot of things went on around those Olympic Games, which was unfortunate for me. But um, again, uh, a disappointment similar to four years previous, but, uh, but life goes on and you have to take that into perspective. And, um, but if I can say there was one disappointment in my career, it would have been those, those Atlanta Games. After Atlanta, you continued to compete for another couple of years. Was it during this period you began contemplating retirement from athletics, which you finally did in 1999? It's always been intriguing for me to think about what a professional athlete goes through when they begin to think about the end of their athletic career. Can you describe how you got from active competitor to thinking about calling it a day? What was your thought process during this period? Well, I was, again, very fortunate, uh, and I, I keep saying it, coaches, mentors, parents, it's, it's a common theme in, in my life, um, you know, supportive colleagues slash training partners. So I, I, first and foremost, I was always, always, always in a positive environment ever since I was a child. I was, I'm very, very lucky, and you get a perspective on that, as you uh, as you mature and get older, and uh, not everyone has that type of situation to, to be brought up in, but I was very, very lucky. So in that regard, from a transition perspective, moving from sport into quote-unquote real life, <laughs> um, there was a, a natural segue, a, number, a couple of years that, you know, you really give some deep thought into what you ultimately want to do long-term. And as an as a Olympic athlete, I was, as I mentioned, fortunate to have uh, corporate sponsors and, and, and win prize money. And at a number of those competitions, uh, the prize money has to be um, held in trust for you so as a, to maintain your quote-unquote amateur status as an Olympic athlete. So my trust fund was growing uh, nicely <laughs> through my 20s. And uh, I, I really took an active role in managing uh, an investment portfolio for myself. Mm-hmm. And originally, as, an, as a, an Olympic athlete, we were only allowed to invest in T-bills. So you can imagine as a, a 20-year-old athlete with a, a long life ahead of him to invest in such a conservative uh, platform around T-bills didn't make a lot of sense to me. And so uh, my agent and myself um, lobbied Sport Canada to change their criteria. And then I took a, and which, uh, which they, um, they did, it took a little bit of time to do that. 
but I really took an active role in managing uh, my own portfolio and my own money, and which I really, really, really enjoyed. I, I was always uh, a bit of a math geek in, in high school and university and uh, enjoyed analysis and uh, ultimately thought that was the direction I was going to go into after my career. Okay, hold that thought for a second because we're going to talk about your post-athletic career in quite a bit of detail. This is, though, uh, a show about turning a passion for something into a profession. So what advice can you offer those who have a passion similar to your own who might consider Olympic athlete as a career choice? If you have an inkling desire to do it, you should do it and try your hardest to get there. And um, most people won't. That's a reality of the Olympic Games or the NHL or the NBA. But it would not be the right thing to do not to try. And I was really fortunate, as I mentioned, to be in an environment where I, I had the support of people around me to give me the optionality to try, but some other people might not. But just to have your own inner self-drive is, is really, really important. I can remember watching the 76 Olympic Games on television and Nadia Kamenich and Greg Joy and Alberto Wantarena, and just all these images of the Olympics are really ingrained in my head. And I thought, I didn't decide, but I just thought when I was watching that, I would really like to go there one day. And that always stuck with me. I didn't know what sport, I didn't know when, I didn't know how, but it made a significant impression on me. And I always remember that when... uh, when I look at the Olympic Games now that I've been experienced having competed at three and, and still do some commentating at several others, it's those eight, nine, 10, 11 year old kids that are the true, true audience that will be inspired by these athletes that they're seeing on television. Um, obviously, the Olympic Games is very corporate and it's a huge, massive business, but at the same time, it's an inspirational platform. It certainly was for me, and I believe it is for, for young kids still to this day. So trying is a valid exercise, even if ultimately the chances of succeeding are relatively small. The lessons you learn from trying stick with you forever. Interesting. Without getting into the precise details, can you provide a little context around the financial aspects of being an Olympic athlete? In other words, what was the general nature of the financial rewards the, of that career choice, both on and off the field? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting question because a lot of people wonder what is you know what is what do athletes get? Who pays them? How does it work? But right. but uh, in, and where do you get your spending? Money? Yeah, exactly. In my era, and it's changed a little bit, not as much as you'd think. But in my era, um, if you're a top eight in the world, we'll use that as sort of an elite level. Um, you, the Canadian government paid you $650 a month if you are top eight in the world. So in today's dollars, that would be what? $1,500, $2,000 a month. Wow. So not quite poverty level, considering all of the travel time, training, etc., but but not uh, certainly not uh, the riches of professional sport. So in addition to, and it is not meant to be uh, a, a money-making career from that perspective. Uh, it's supposed to be support. It's not supposed to be the mainstay, but it's kind of a catch-22 because you need, uh, uh, you need more money than that to excel at a sport. So in addition to being top eight in the world and $650 a month, you know, $7,000, $8,000 a year, um, I was really fortunate to attract the attention of Corporate Canada and, and uh, corporations internationally. And, and that's where the real tipping point happens as an athlete. Once you are identified as a potential podium finisher, um, that's where the corporate sponsor and corporate support and partnerships and relationships that you make there um, can really benefit you both financially and then just your ability to train and compete to the best of your ability. Um, so 
from a corporate perspective, I was I, I had uh, Mars Bars, which uh, the the is a is a large privately owned company, but uh, everyone would recognize that name. Um, Adidas was a, a major sponsor of mine. AMJ Campbell is Canada's largest moving company was a sponsor of mine. I worked with Oakley sunglasses, Seiko watches, so a number of sponsors you know came knocking at the door, and I had a fantastic agent as well who kind of managed all of that for me. But uh, along with uh, an annual stipend that uh, a number of those sponsors would um, would pay you, there would be bonuses involved for podium finishes and top 10 finishes. So um, it's a little bit of a matrix, but uh, uh, you can make a decent living at, as a top, top level Olympic athlete in certain sports, not all sports, but decathlon was certainly one of them where you could at least make a living. You've identified what sounds like an important skill for the prospective Olympic athlete you need to be able to interface with corporate interests and have a conversation with them. This idea that you can simply be good on the field and that's enough doesn't sound like it's true. You have to be pretty effective off the field courting that kind of corporate interest. And and certainly that does come into play. And and for me, it was a a natural thing to do. I've always been intrigued and enthralled by business, so why shouldn't I talk with people who run businesses? And I I really enjoy that. Some, Some athletes, that might not be their thing. And, is that uh, a limitation for them as athletes? Potentially, yeah. uh, not necessarily, but 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 potentially. And you have to, you have to recognize once you are doing the sport for yourself alone, it's one thing. And then you get on the world stage and you recognize the fact that hey, you know what? And and I remember hearing Charles Barkley talk about I'm not a role model. Um, but inevitably, in some way, shape, or form, you are. And even if you don't want to be, which I fully respect his opinion of not wanting to be, but uh, you want to share your story to the right people at the right point in time. I, I, I work uh, with big brothers, big sisters from a mentorship perspective, and I think that's really important. And that's just me. Not everyone uh, might have that opinion, but, but certainly... From, uh, from my perspective and, and history, I think that's an important factor. And uh, I think uh, the people that ultimately supported me through my career recognized that. And uh, there has to be a personal relationship and uh, um, some type of uh, uh, resonance between uh, an athlete and, and his sponsors, I believe. And I certainly had some great sponsors in that regard. While you were still early in your decathlon career, you made the decision to attend and get your degree from the University of Toronto. This sounds like the beginning of your post-athletics career transition. Can you tell us more about that decision and in particular why you decided to do that so early in your career? Yeah, I, I think uh, my, my grandfather was a headmaster of a boys' school in Barbados. My father has his master's degree. Uh, my mother's a nurse. So education has always been a significant part of our family. Um, a lot of my aunts attended McGill growing up in Barbados but came to Canada. So um, I knew that, uh, that education was a, a big component and uh, a stimulating positive one as well. It wasn't a chore for me to, to learn. I, I really enjoyed it. And um, a lot of athletes at University of Toronto kind of defaulted to kinesiology or physical education, but um, I had enough of that on one aspect of my life, and I really preferred the stimulation around um, calculus and statistics uh, otherwise. So I found a nice mix. I was really fortunate once again uh, to have some complementary passions and interests, and, uh, and certainly with, uh, with commerce, um, it's a, a pretty broad um, scope of, of, uh, of subject matters that you can cover and directions that you can go with it. But uh, certainly the financial side of things and the financial markets, capital markets, was uh, an attractive place to go post my athletic career. Pretty much ever since you retired, you have been steadily called upon to provide TV and radio color commentary on world-class athletic events like the Olympics and the World Championships. Can you tell us how this came about, and do you enjoy this aspect of your post-Olympic career? I do, I do enjoy it. It's, uh, um, I, I, every four years, I get the best seats in the house to watch the Olympic Games, track and field particularly, with the accreditation at the Olympic Games, uh, once you have media 
accreditation. You can typically go to a number of other sports, which I have in the past, but track and field is a pretty significant event in and of itself, so it's nine or ten days straight of, uh, of commentating, but I absolutely enjoy it. I'm a big fan of the sport as well, and I can't say that for a lot of other sports that I participated in as, as a child, but I have such an appreciation for track and field, and uh, I was fortunate to be approached by CBC, a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, um, a, f- a handful of months after I had uh, decided to retire from sport, and they asked if I would like to come in and do a little bit of a, a demo. And uh, a gentleman by the name of Don Whitman um, was working in track and field as a, a host commentator, and uh, we really uh, got along well together. He, we, we hit it off, and uh, he encouraged uh, the powers that be at, at CBC to, to pick me after I did that demo with him. He said, Michael can be very good at this. And, um, and uh, that's been a long, uh, I wouldn't call it a career, but certainly a, a pastime of mine because it only takes anywhere from two to four weeks a year to, to cover these major events. But, uh, but it's a lot of fun to sit at the front row of the Olympic Games and just watch the best athletes in the world perform. It's a great thing to do. So you have Rio 2016 coming up shortly. Are you looking forward to that? I am. Um, there's a lot of uh, um, stresses on the system, as they say, with uh, the economy, the environment, uh, the political instability, um, uh, health concerns. So there's a lot of things going on uh, as we lead into, into Rio. Um, and it's not going to be perfect, but I know once the Olympic flame is lit and uh, the first round of the first uh, event on the track, the gun goes off, Um, all that will go by the wayside and everyone will focus on the youth of the world participating and uh, trying to achieve their goals it's it's uh, um, uh, it's a fascinating thing to watch and um, I I hope for the country of Brazil I know that it has a a long history and a a great future ahead of itself uh, regardless of the current state of affairs but I think they will be very uh, um, proud hosts of the game it seems like a lot of professional athletes, and in particular the ones who are not as well prepared as you were for retirement, consider media as a logical destination after their athletic career is finished. Is this wise, do you think? I don't think so. It's, uh, it's just uh, too small of a percentage chance to do it. There's just too many players who have that same idea or, or competitors that have that same idea. I was fortunate that it, uh, it worked out for me, but it is certainly not the norm. And, um, but if it's, if it is a strong interest, again, I say pursue it and try it and, uh, and go for it. If it's not, and you just think that that's a natural thing to do and you don't have a passion for it, it's probably the wrong thing. It's funny that with two of the seminal events in your career, first getting into the sport and then getting into the broadcasting part of the business, in both cases, you have had people come knocking on your door. <laughs> I, yeah, I come to think of it, you're right. <laughs> what, what, a, what a fortunate thing. You have now been retired from the sport about as long as you were involved in it, about 13 years or so. When you retired from athletic competition, did you have a specific plan for your post-Olympic career? And if so, have you been able to fulfill that plan? Can you tell us about your career arc since your retirement from Olympic competition? I, I don't think I had a real specific career plan. I knew that I had a general interest in it. My, my financial services career post uh, my athletic career is kind of like my athletic career in a lot of respects. I knew that I liked numbers and math and dollars, <laughs> and however that morphed or evolved, I wasn't quite sure. But again, the people that I've had the opportunity to work with, mentors I've uh, been able to sit shoulder to shoulder with, have really guided and, uh, and molded my post-athletic career. Um, there was a gentleman, um, and this is, uh, uh, you never know who will, who will open a door for you, but my massage therapist, who I worked with for a decade, my massage therapist's wife's cousin was the branch manager at an investment firm here in Calgary. And uh, he, he knew that I retired, and he knew I had an interest, interest in finance. So he invited me down to his office just for a, a lunch and a coffee and uh, a conversation. And um, lo and behold, I had another world-class mentor show up for me in that regard as well. 
and uh, gave me the opportunity to learn from him and, and sit in uh, on uh, the investment banking side, on the research side of the business, on the uh, institutional and, and private client uh, investment side of the business. So he gave me great exposure to this very intriguing arena within finance. And so again, just like you mentioned, it was another person who uh, was in my life and, and gave me another great opportunity. And, uh, and that's, that's how it's kind of evolved from there. And I've, uh, once I got my footing and knew that I enjoyed it, I've, I've kind of uh, walked my own path uh, in regards to that. And it's, it's, it's changed and morphed, but it's always uh, stayed in a similar vein. And I think that's my nature as a, as a decathlete as well. Even though I call decathlon one, one uh, sport, it is literally 10 events. And uh, I can't, that's kind of like my life and my interest in finance. I, I do um, love working with, uh, with people and clients that I've had in the past, but I also like spending time with the investment bankers and the research guys who are crunching numbers. So um, I think it's the, the decathlete in me will always have this kind of diverse interest. It, it seems that you've had an uncanny knack of being able to identify who should coach you. Over the course of your life, mm-hmm. is that is that a skill that you can quantify? Uh, is, is that something that you can convey to others? Mm-hmm. Here's what's to, here's what you need to look for yeah. in somebody who you're gonna who, who you're gonna ask to coach you yeah. or to mentor you. Yeah. you. You've done a really good job, mm-hmm. and we're gonna talk about some of the mentoring work that you're doing mm-hmm. now. But uh, you've done a really good job of identifying those people mm-hmm. that who who you want to work with. Yeah. So is that a skill that you can transfer? others possibly and again physically i won the genetic lottery and and psychologically i won the parenting lottery and my parents set the template for supportive tough love and all the positive beneficial aspects of those words and tough is not bad it's like you can do better than this you know you know right charge ahead you can do this those type of things and just to have that template ingrained within you from birth is a huge asset and not again not everyone is fortunate to have that so at times you have to go find it and so and a lot of uh, times when you try and go find it it might not be the best choice first time off or second time off or third time off but eventually if you continue to be self-reflective, know yourself, I think that you have an opportunity to, to be around and literally attract the right people to support you. Um, and, and I don't base that on science. I base that on a little bit of my own experience, but it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit, of, uh, little bit of belief. You just have to believe that there's, there are people out there that, uh, um, that, that want to support and encourage and see people grow. And again, I was just a really lucky person to have those type of people in my life for my entire, you know, 48 years of existence. You recently left your position as an investment advisor with Peterson Company to co-found and become managing partner of Fast Leadership, a leadership development, executive, and entrepreneur coaching firm. From the sound of it, it seems to combine aspects of your athletic career with your latter professional career. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. It's a, a gentleman who I've known for many, many years encouraged me, again, to, to try something um, that uh, I would have a, a knack for. It combined my athletic um, background with my business background, and um, there was an opportunity came about, and uh, I decided to, to move forward with it. And um, working with individuals wanting to become better just makes sense to me in, in the context of my career. And uh, I, I've been doing that with a number of people from a financial perspective in the financial services world, um, supporting them and, uh, and, and trying to improve and increase their portfolio value. But uh, this is a little bit more all-encompassing to, to try and improve them as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, um, as a person, and, uh, and certainly those type of opportunities are, um, I, I, I hold that dear because I've been a recipient of, of, of that type of mentoring, coaching, guidance, and um, at all levels. And uh, inevitably, when, when you start to evolve uh, in this business, you start sitting 
um, not across from someone, you know, being, uh, making them accountable to, to what they want. And, and you told me you wanted to achieve this goal. I'm going to help you get there. Um, but you inevitably sit shoulder to shoulder and it's just a slight, uh, you know, change of perspective of, you know, let's keep moving towards that horizon and I'll encourage you to get there. So it's, uh, Again, it's very philosophical sounding, but, but, but certainly excellence and um, the pursuit of excellence and, and goal setting has always, always been a part of my life, born from the athletic side of me, but it has incredible applicability to the business side. It's hard to imagine that when you are an elite athlete that the role of the coach is to help you with the basic mechanics of the sport I also imagine that executive coaching has little to do with the basic mechanics of the business. Is there a parallel there? Did the elite level coaching you received as an athlete help you with the executive coaching work that you are doing now? How are they similar and how are they different? I, I think at an, at an elite level for sport anyways, rather for, for a coach when you're, when you're younger, there, there's certainly a guide to encourage you along. To, to push you to be better. But once you hit a certain elite level and, and, and it really comes about with knowing yourself and what self-motivates you, and once you've achieved or moving in the direction of that level, a world-class athletic coach will recognize that and, and morph accordingly. And that's why a lot of Olympic coaches only work with Olympians because they've gotten to, to that level. They probably will never go back or, or might go back just to help a little bit to coach, you know, peewee hockey, you know, once you got to the NHL level. But, but once you get to a certain level, more than a guide, I think you, as a coach, act more like a mirror to, to uh, continually allow that athlete or the business person or the entrepreneur or the goal setter to see more of themselves. Self-awareness is the ultimate tool. What motivates me? Um, what am I really good at? What am I bad at? Um, and not that I should spend a whole heck of a lot of time fixing what I don't like and what I'm bad at, but let's just focus on what I excel at and what, what I'm really good at. And let's find some other great people to fill in the blanks where I'm not really good. And you, you can see that more in a team sport where, okay, if you're a quarterback, you're not going to be a free safety on defense as well. You're going to focus all your time on being a quarterback and being a really good quarterback. And you can fill in the gaps. In an individual sport, tennis, track and field, what, whatever it might be, you have to fill in those gaps yourself through through training but um, as, a, as a business person it is a team sport there's very rarely the sole individual entrepreneur who knocks it out of the park all by him or herself it's just the case so I think you have to change your perspective from a, a business leader business owner to say I'll do it all myself you have to surround yourself with the right people the right team and uh, um, and even though track and field, like I mentioned, is an individual sport, I had a incredible team as well. They weren't on the playing field with me, but they were certainly there. I had multiple coaches in my throws, my jumps, my runs, physiotherapists, massage therapists, sports psychologists. That's a big team for an, for a, an individual. Who are largely invisible while you're on the field. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. but. Uh, uh, not unimportant by any stretch of the imagination. What you have described sounds a lot more like mentorship more than my notion of coaching. I understand that you're involved with the Big Brothers and Big Sisters program, which I think of as very much a mentoring organization. I take it your involvement with that organization is not a coincidence in that case. Can you tell us about that, and in particular the relationship it has had to your career both during and after athletics? It, it uh Again, a, a, a former chair of the board uh, approached me, and I, again, uh, through a network of people that I've been so uh, grateful to, to meet and know, uh, this gentleman, um, we knew each other uh, quite a while ago and then kind of reintroduced ourselves years later. Uh, but again, it was upon his inspiration that he thought that uh, I would be a natural fit for the board, and, and it was a very logical thought process to myself as well. I, I think I'd be a good member of the board as well. But only because I have been 
such a recipient of mentorship. And, uh, and I keep saying it, but uh, it started with my parents, my elementary school teachers, my high school sport coaches, my Olympic coaches, my business mentors and leaders and CEOs that I've been able to work with. So all of these people, I have been such a great recipient of mentorship. I thought it was only natural for me to help support that environment and potentially give back as well. So I, I've had the good fortune of mentoring a young gentleman who had an interest in track and field and a good athlete and a good student. And um, uh, I think I was a lot more nervous to do it than he was. Mm. But uh, I tell you what, I got, a, I got, I, I think I got more out of it than he did. And, and you know, we'll, we'll see. Time will tell if uh, he'll reflect back on our time together and how it impacted his life. But I certainly um, enjoyed the process of passing on some of my experience and wisdom. It's a, it's a real fulfilling thing to do that and, and to see someone uh, be a sponge and really take it in is, is, is uh, even more fulfilling. So, uh, so working with Big Brothers, Big Sisters has definitely been a natural fit for me and I will support um, uh, that type of positive, proactive environment any way, shape or form I possibly can. But um, it was just a, a real natural uh, fit for me. Are you still providing a mentoring relationship to this individual? Currently, I'm not, yeah. but uh, but we we stay in touch, and uh, and at uh, at some point in time, I, I definitely will uh, reintroduce myself to a mentoring relationship. Uh, right now, I have my hands full with my with my wife and I's four and a half year old daughter. Wow! And, and doing, yeah, that'll do it. Doing our, our best with her. And, <laughs> That's right. Uh, um, parenting, and yep. so, but but certainly, uh, it's not lost on me that I, I still have. Uh, a decent perspective to bestow on some some people who might uh, might want to listen. So I'll, I'll revisit that certainly at some point in time. We are getting to the end of our time today, Michael. So before we finish, uh, how is it that you see the rest of your career unfolding? That's a great question. We I, I'm I'm uh, I'm very optimistic about what life holds, and I, I don't want to. And I, I I've done this on purpose. In the past, I, I don't get too specific with the direction and channel and focus that I that I take. I think I like to leave uh, the playing field pretty wide. Um, and again, um, decathlon was a really good fit for me because that's my mindset as well. I think I would get not bored, but I would get understimulated by just doing one single thing all the time. And I think I can have that perspective on my career also that uh, if I was just doing tax returns, I don't think I would be that fulfilled. And not nothing against doing tax no, returns is an important not. function. And if you love it, do it. But um, just for me personally, um, I just think I'll, I'll keep it broad. But, but the biggest factor in that I really enjoy meeting and speaking with uh, and listening to and learning from dynamic, intelligent, interesting people. And if I can continue to expose myself to that, that's probably my goal in life, is to continue to do that for as long as I possibly can. Do you foresee a time or a set of circumstances where you would be drawn back into Olympic competition, potentially as a coach? At this point in time, I can honestly say no. Yeah. It is, I, I believe... Coaching business leaders, entrepreneurs, not to say that it's easy, but gosh, there is, uh, you don't have to wait four years in between, you know, <laughs> selling one of your products yeah. or, you know, hiring the right person. Um, being an Olympic coach is really, really hard. And, uh, and I get that perspective from an athlete who is a recipient of all these great people who supported me, and I will always support them in any way, shape, or form that I can. But doing the job of the great people in my life is really difficult. And I, and, uh, um, I don't know if I have it in me, to tell you the truth. I would, I would, uh, uh, I would, I would prefer to um, help uh, a CEO, you know, get to his goals, that you don't have to wait every four years to get the sole single place on top of the podium with a gold medal. If you're a business leader and you, you know, hit your targets uh, that you want this year, you can come to work tomorrow and reset those targets and every day you can win a gold medal. 
And that's a really good thing to do. And that's why I really enjoy business. You can win a gold medal every day. Michael, I just want to thank you for taking time to talk with us today. It's been fascinating, and it's clear to me now why CBC tracked you down after you retired to do their broadcast work. You made today's interview extremely easy and a real pleasure. I hope we can have you back for an update on your career journey at some point down the road. Thank you, Terry. That's it for the second episode of the Work Not Work Show. Once again, thanks to Michael C. Smith for being our guest. Our website is worknotwork.show, and our series of podcasts can be found on iTunes. Simply look for Work Not Work in the podcast section. And we're on Twitter, of course, at Work Not Work. If you are somebody who has turned your passion into a profession or know somebody who has, please get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. We also look forward to hearing your feedback about this or any other episode of the Work Not Work Show. The show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Terence C. Gannon, and is wholly owned by Interlog Inc. of Calgary, Alberta, Canada. All rights are reserved. Our theme music is Working for Friday from the Lionfish Music Group located in beautiful Brooklyn, New York. Thank you, Michelle, my lovely wife, for your continued support and your infinite patience. Finally, thank you, our audience, for supporting Work Not Work, the show about people who have turned their passion into their profession.